Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. On the occasion of the exhibition Tintoretto, Artist of Renaissance Venice, Eric Denker, Senior Lecturer at the National Gallery of Art, presents a four-part lecture series examining Jacopo Tintoretto's work in the context of 16th century Venetian art, history, and culture. In this third lecture, Tintoretto Central, the Scuola Grande di San Rocco, held on May 7, 2019, Denker discusses the decorations for the charitable confraternity Scuola Grande di San Rocco, which occupied Tintoretto for more than 25 years. In 1564, his painting, San Rocco in Glory, won the competition for the central ceiling canvas of the Scuola's boardroom. His greatest masterpiece, the 40-foot-wide Crucifixion, was painted the following year. In the 1570s, he completed the Old and New Testament cycles for the upper level of the Scuola, and in the 1580s, he finished the decoration of the ground floor with scenes from the life of the Virgin Mary. In all, Tintoretto executed more than 65 paintings for the Brotherhood of the Scuola, a remarkable achievement for the humble cloth dyer's son. Good morning. Welcome to the West Building of the National Gallery of Art. I'm Eric Denker with the staff of the Education Division, and this is the third in a series of lectures providing context for the three exhibitions of Tintoretto, the exhibition upstairs of Tintoretto, Artist of Renaissance Venice, as well as the exhibitions of drawing in the time of Tintoretto and printmaking in the time of Tintoretto as well. This lecture deals with, as you can see from the screen, Tintoretto Central, ground zero as it was for Tintoretto studies in Venice and for seeing the works of the master, the Scuola Grandi Arciconfortanita di San Rocco in Venice. And so it begs several questions before we actually begin. And questions are, when does he work at the Scuola San Rocco? But even before that, we have to talk about what a Scuola is and what San Rocco specifically is, and then how he came to work there, and then to examine the cycles of paintings he did in the albergo, the boardroom, in the uh, Sala Superiore, the upper room, and in the Sala Terrena, uh, the lower level as well. So I'm going to start with a quote. I never was so utterly crushed to the earth before any human intellect as I was today before Tintoret, wrote the great 19th century English critic John Ruskin after visiting the Scuola Grande di San Rocco in Venice. His near contemporary, the US novelist Henry James, shared the English critic's views. No painter ever had such breadth and such depth. Titian was assuredly a mighty poet, but Tintoret, well, Tintoret was almost a prophet. We spent our last lecture going through the early development of Tintoretto's work leading up to this painting, which he did for the Scuola Grande di San Marco. And uh, we talked about the various different sources, not only Titian, but Andrea Schiavone. And we talked about Francesco Salviati, and we talked about Bonifacio di Pitate, and we came to this pivotal point in his career. And so that is where we pick up today. But first, a few words about Scuola. Scuola in Venetian marks a confraternity, a lay confraternity often associated with religious organizations as well. There were four different types of confraternities. They extended back to the 12th and 13th century. Some of these confraternities were devoted to nationalities. So in this most cosmopolitan of cities, there were scuole, charitable organizations that were devoted to the Albanian community or the Greek community or the Slav community, all of these uh, essential cradle-to-grave support organizations. 
others tended to function more as charitable organizations associated with what might, might consider to be guilds. And so there were the scuole of the tanners, the scuole of the sausage makers, the scuole of the shoemakers, or of the uh, metal workers. And there was the scuole of the painters and artisans as well. A third type was uh, very specifically devoted to religious functions. So there were scuole that were devoted to a guardian angel or devoted to the sacraments or devoted to various different uh, saints. And these also gave charitable elements to their society, but not specifically by nationality or by guild. And then there was a, a larger class of scuole, the scuole grande. There were six all the way up until the uh, 17th and 18th century. Eventually, there would be seven. These were the Scuole Grande, and they were important organizations in a number of different ways. So to begin with, they were quite large. Uh, they were uh, pan-city. You could find members from all over uh, the city of Venice. And they were important as administrative organizations that also supported major charities, so that they would support dowries for women that lacked money for them, or orphans, or hospitals, or the poor generally, giving food and drink and clothing to the poor. These grand institutions generally had a guardian grande, in Venetian guardian, guardian grando, uh, who was the head. These were elected from the membership. And then there was a vicar, a kind of vice president. There were other board members. These people actually were often wealthy, ambitious, influential people, but they weren't of the patrician class. The patricians were allowed to be members of the Scuole Grande, but they could not serve on the board. And so it became an outlet for people of prominence because the board, in fact, was able to influence both the doge and the uh, uh, figures on the Council of Ten and the procurators. And so it was an outlet for those people who were disenfranchised because their families were not in the Golden Book, which had been closed to families from the beginning of the 14th century. So it was an outlet. And it was an important outlet in this regard. So the Scuola Grande go back to the Scuola of the Misericordia, the Scuola of Charity, of the Carita. San Rocco is among the younger of the Scuole. And so we have to go back to precisely uh, when and where their founding and development took place. I brought this slide along, which shows you the Scuole as they exist today in many cases. And back over here, beyond the turn here in the Grand Canal, near the Church of the Frari, you can see the Scuola Grande and the Church of San Rocco right over here, not really very far off the Grand Canal. Other Scuola Grande included the Misericordia here, the Scuola Grande di San Marco over here, the Scuola Grande di San Teodoro over here, and down over here, the Scuola Grande del Carmine, down off of Campo Santa Margarita, and the Carita, which is now the Academia Museum in Venice. And you can actually make out on the grand map just over here from 1500, this view of Venice, we would be able to pick out the smaller Scuoletta and the church in their form around 1500. Just back over here, there's the Campanile of the Church of the Frari, and it's these buildings here. And there is an aerial view. And here is the Church of San Rocco. And here is the Scuoletta, this small building that originally housed the Scuola. And this grand building, which is the building we will be discussing throughout the lecture. So, who is San Rocco? St. Roque of Montpellier, 
died in Piacenza in 1327. He was a plague saint. He was born of wealthy parents in Provence, but he dedicated himself to a life of asceticism. He gave away his goods and went on a pilgrimage. He came to Italy where he cured many plague victims by his prayers and by his touch. He is not only a plague saint, but he is the patron saint of dogs, of falsely accused people, of bachelors, and several others as well. And he is the patron saint of Dolo, a small town near Venice, as well as Parma. In Venice, a confraternity was founded in 1478 to relieve those suffering from illness, particularly plague. They received the body of the saint in 1485. There had been an older church in Scoletta on this site behind the Fari. When the confraternity settled permanently in the area, bordering the Franciscan Frari Monastery in 1489. The confraternity moved to San Samuele and then to San Silvestro while the crumbling church was rebuilt and the modest brick and timber construction, which was to come today's Scoletta, was also rebuilt. Over 20 years, Due to rapid growth in membership, which reached 500 by 1514, and the increasing importance of the confraternity, the Scuoletta became inadequate. And in 1517, construction of the Scuola Grande was underway. In 1517, they hired the architect Bartolomeo Bon, who was told to comply with the pre-existing plans drawn up by the Scuola's governing body. A ground floor hall was divided into three naves by two rows of columns, and it was accessed via a main door onto the square. An upper hall, a large single room intended for chapter meetings, was established upstairs. To one side of that upper hall, there was a smaller hall, the Sala di Albergo, which was destined for the regular meetings of the Banca, the board, along with a second board, the Zonta, the narrow executive committee of the confraternity. Although there were disagreements which arose between Bonn and the Scuola's building committee, he remained in place until 1524. And then other architects, eventually the architect known as Lo Scarpanino, who was at the height of his career, was hired in the latter part of 1527. And it was he who saw the building more or less through to completion, adding eventually the eight columns, and you can just make them out here because these are fairly important. You can see these columns across the front, which were a classicizing element and it gives the facade wall a somewhat triumphal look in comparison to classical Roman arches. And it appears that that was the suggestion of Jacopo Sansovino. Already by this time, the Scuola had what was considered to be a miracle working icon. This image of Christ carrying the cross, which has uh, been attributed to Giorgione, perhaps finished by Titian. And so we come to Tintoretto and his association with the Scuola. Already in 1549, he had done this large laterale, this large painting of San Roque in the hospital curing plague victims. It's an enormous painting, 10 feet high by 22 feet wide. And it is on the right-hand side of the chancel in the apse of the church of San Rocco. It shows Tintoretto's burgeoning confidence in the uh, way in which the human figure is expressive, the use of space, perspective, severe foreshortening, the interaction of various figures. So we are meant, in fact, to see this painting from over here, over on your right side. And so that's why these figures are large and we look past them and that's the diagonal that brings us into the saint who is actually curing this victim. 
And then there is the vanishing point, which brings us to the same point. And so necessarily, there is a view from here that has larger figures from the priest's point of view. So they, both of them bring us into this central area. And you'll note the clear definition of a kind of divine light that surrounds the central figures amidst this darkness. And then the several figures over here, and you can see quite prominently the bubo, which often appeared on the thigh in this way, which was the symbol of the plague victim. So this had already been done at the behest of the scuola. And Tintoretto asked to be a member, and they promised him membership, but they delayed. They dragged their feet in making him a member. And then the building itself is finished by the latter part of the 1540s, and the Brotherhood decides that they want to decorate it. We know that Titian, in fact, offered to do a large painting for the albergo when they considered it in 1553. But that came to nothing, and it's suspected that Titian was trying to co-opt the uh, idea of Tintoretto being in the service of the scuola at this point. And so there is something else we need to consider, that we are in the midst of the Counter-Reformation, and that the great scuola often vied with one another, not only for important architects, but for important painters. And therefore, they began to come under criticism for spending too much on their decorations as opposed to spending on the poor, which was their function and their mission. We know, for instance, that one critic, Caravaglia, wrote, they are part of the saint of the plague and have done such good works at the arrogant scuola foliage, harpies, and so many beautiful heads, and columns carved in the newest manner so as to prove each a master. They've spent 80,000 ducats when 6,000 would have been enough. The rest, which was spent in vain, could have been spent for the bare feet and naked who cry out. The investments in the poor are botched in order to build but not out of devotion, columns that jut into the piazza. So here are a number of criticisms, and this is during the reform of the Catholic Church in reference to the Reformation itself, the greater interest in charity and humility. And we'll see that Tintoretto, in fact, will respond to these ideas. There is a story told by Vasari and others of the competition for the albergo, for the main meeting room, which was the first to be decorated. And the story goes that on May 22nd, the Brotherhood decided on a competition, and they announced it on May 31st. And according to various biographers, Rodolfi included, the competition was open to Andrea Schiavone, Federico Zuccaro, Giuseppe Salviati, and Veronese, the young rival of Tintoretto. And that on May 31st, they requested that each of them do a compositional drawing, which they would return with in three weeks. In fact, Tintoretto, instead of doing the compositional drawing, did the painting that you see before you and with the collusion of members of the confraternity, had it put in place so that when the artist returned and the board returned three weeks later, his painting was already on the ceiling, leading both some of the board and the artist furious. Now, this may well be an apocryphal tale. We don't have the specific details. It may show the entrepreneurial spirit and speed with which Tintoretto worked. In any event, he offered it, according to the tale, he offered to give it to the scuola, knowing that as a charitable institution, they had to receive it as a gift. 
despite the objections of some members of the board who even offered money if he didn't get the commission, he was given the commission to decorate, to put this on the ceiling, and then to decorate the rest of the ceiling. The San Rocco that you see in front of you is about 12 feet wide and about eight and three quarter feet high. It deliberately pays homage to the DeSoto and Sioux that he had used earlier, but also to what would have been seen next door in the apse of the Church of the Frari. God the Father there above, arms outspread, surrounded by angels. And you can see the upper part of Titian's magnificent assumption here. So he did the ceiling with a series of allegories and references to other scuole. The scuole supported each other. Many people were members of multiple scuole. And he received the commission to do this painting of the crucifixion. And it is one of his most important, significant pieces in all of his career. So as you look at it, I should tell you that it's about 18 and a half feet tall and it is 40 feet wide. And it's an image of the crucifixion and he painted it entirely in 1565. It is in the boardroom, a room that is a little bit smaller than this. Uh, it is on the wall above. Here are the benches. This is where the board would normally sit and the membership of the board would sit out here. There is, in fact, a passageway that leads down underneath this bench to a secret treasury that is below this floor and still contains important relics today. And this wall contains other paintings as well as the one that I showed you before. You can see it has a very beautiful gilded ceiling, and this will be true in each of the three areas that we see. He had done other crucifixions, this one about a decade before, for the Church of uh, San Severo, for the Scuola of the Sacramento. It is today in the Academia. You can see it's a rather confused affair. As you look at it, it's difficult to separate out the mourners from the figures here from the figure over here, one of the centurions, from the figures on horseback over here, and the crowds. Once again, it was not meant to be seen on the perpendicular, it was meant to be seen on, on an oblique angle. Even so, it is difficult to reconcile how claustrophobic it really is. Now he has greater space, and he has the advantage that he's not working on a, an oblique angle of view. Instead, you're looking straight on. So here is the crucifixion for the Scuola San Rocco. Clearly, the organizing principle is this dominant vertical in the center of Christ on the cross. And the family and friends down below, Mary swooning, Joseph of Arimathea, St. John, all here at the base, covering up where the crucifix is actually placed. Because given that the light that falls here would suggest that the cross is a little bit further back, we don't actually see that. And so space is somewhat oddly delineated. We are meant to read it episodically. So while we acknowledge the centrality of Christ, and the aura coming from Christ and his arms outspread, were meant to then concentrate on various different vignettes. And so here on the left is the good thief, and he is in the process of being raised up. And he looks up toward Christ and bathes in the light of Christ, and light always has this symbolic value in Tintoretto's work, and Christ looks down toward him as Christ says, surely today you will be in paradise with me. 
He is just being lifted up, and he's being lifted up by a group of men who are typical Venetian workers using tools that one might have seen in the arsenal and in other places around the city. He is shown in contrast to the bad thief who is only just being put on the cross, who's in shadow, whose back is to Christ, and the hole for that cross is only just begun over in this section. And then we see figures over here on horseback. We see Centurion back here on his donkey. We see others gesturing up. And we see a variety of onlookers, including figures which are no doubt members of the Scuola. And this takes it out of simply historical accuracy and makes it relevant and present to the onlooker today. And there is a long explanatory panel here explaining when Tintoretto did it, who was the Gradian Grande, Rota, and how this is in honor of the importance of the Scuola as well. So all of these combine for us to read it almost cinematically, that we read Christ already up on the cross, another cross being raised, the other thief over here, simply being prepared. And we see mourners, but other people on all sides. And here are the details. And so you can look back again, the centurion with his spear out over here, or this one who points up, or these figures at the base. And one of the things about Tintoretto is that we're usually not looking for physiognomy to contribute to the emotional impact of the story. We're usually looking at the expressive pose of the body, the torsion and torque within these different figures. Now, in all of these, Tintoretto starts with a dark brown ground so that he can work both darker and lighter, so that he can work with speed and so that he can occasionally leave the color of the ground simply to show through in those passages where he only sketches in a few outline details. And here is the detail. And it is the ladder that sweeps us, because we're meant to be in front, the ladder that sweeps us up into and establishes all of our attention that goes there to that central figure on the cross. Essentially, everything else in the building will be built on the fact that this is the central image for the scola. And there's the plaque that I mentioned down here. And here is the bad thief. And I take time to point out that this figure in blue to the lower right is believed to be a self-portrait of Tintoretto who puts himself at the event. Now, of course, we can't bring that work here. It never leaves its location. But we have provided at least a small substitute in this print by Agostino Caracci from 1588 that is in the adjacent exhibition of prints from the time of Tintoretto. And while there are areas that have been simplified, certainly in the background, in the figures on either side here, it does give you a sense of the monumentality of the image. On the facing wall, three scenes from the Passion of Christ. The Ecce Homo that you see here, Christ before Pilate over here, and the carrying of the cross over here. All above a very elaborate decorative stone floor. There you can see the icon there in the corner and below this beautiful gilded carved ceiling. And so here are the two side paintings. Over here on the left, Christ carrying the cross, being helped by two men, Simon of Serene and another man. And they all look downward. And this is meant to emphasize the humility of Christ and the sharing of burdens as he's led forth by this rope. And rope has a very important function within these paintings. It is a connector, if you will, but it also refers to the origins of the scuola as a scuola of flagellants. 
and it may also refer to the fact that rope was essential to Venice. The great shipping depended on the greatest rope factory in Europe, so that there are reasons to believe that there are multiple references here. Down here, you'll see that the thieves are being helped as well as they're led along with rope. Over here on the right, Christ appears, this ethereal white figure before Pilate who washes his hands. This is just before the scene on the left. And a scribe to record the words, no words of which issue forth. In an unusual setting for Tintoretto, he's created this classical architecture and this sense of depth and perspective. And it, in fact, is adjacent. You can just make it out here on the right edge to the actual architecture that's in the room. There is that one figure in a largely monochromatic image that stands out. And in this, we think that he may well have been partly inspired, as he was in other works, by Durer. And here we have Durer's image of Christ before Pilate. In between, there is the image that you see here. And so it is Christ presented to the people. And on either side, there are figures. One introduces him to the congregation. The other looks on, but seemingly with a lack of sympathy. And yet, it is this armored figure that we recognize as having occurred in other paintings. So both of these are figures that we've seen in other places, in some cases upstairs. You will notice this figure from the very early furniture of a figure not only in armor, but with this unusual bend. And this is something we will come to time and again through the Scuola San Rocco. And that is that there is not an infinite number of human positions, nor is there an infinite number of perspectives, but that necessarily they will be reused in various ways, sometimes in reverse, sometimes in the same orientation. So now he's completed that room by 1566-67. And he receives a commission to go back and work in the church. And in the church, he does this painting, also a laterale, now on the left side of the apse, of Saint Rocco, Saint Roque, in prison, visited by angels. And so we have this composition, and there are various figures in prison having been tortured, maimed. And suddenly, we get this figure of an angel. And it is a figure that has been related to the figure of St. Mark. Undoubtedly, it's a model that he's viewing from different directions, perhaps hanging from the ceiling of his studio. It's a marvelous figure of this angel floating in from the right side, from out of this space. Here, the viewer is meant to be over here looking in. And so again, the larger figure is here. What you will notice in this scene is also the illumination on the angel, which extends only to some of the figures, but not to all of them. Again, the divine light, the angel helping San Rocco here in prison. And there is that angel seen up above. At about this time, he did this portrait, 1573, of the Guardian Grando, Marco Balbier, Balbiani. Marco Balbiani, who was a member of the bank of the Zonta. And this is a point where for interests in transparency, 
I should mention to you that I am, in fact, a member of the confraternity and that uh, I am the president of the uh, Friends of the School of San Rocco and that uh, we also uh, help with various different uh, conservation projects and that we have just had this cleaned. It was dark and there were reasons that it had been attributed elsewhere. But now that it's cleaned, we know when it was done, we know why it was done, and it was uh, it's an important addition to the some 65 Tintorettos that you'll find in the Scuola San Rocco. Tintoretto must have seen the nearby church of San Sebastiano, represented here, that's the exterior on the left, and the interior on the right. We know that Veronese worked in this church from 1555, 56, again, five years later, and again, 10 years later, essentially decorating the entirety of the church, from the paintings on, alongside the high altar, to frescoes on the side walls, to ceiling paintings and frescoes upstairs. It must have been in the back of Tintoretto's mind that he would like an entire edifice that he could decorate himself. And so we know that with the completion of the albergo, some seven years later, after the albergo was finished in 1574, the Brotherhood made the decision to proceed with the redecoration of the Sala Superiore, the upper hall. And Tinderetto began to work on ceiling canvases in 1575. And the first of these paintings, The Brazen Serpent, was finished in August of 1576. Over the next five years, he would work consistently. And this is the Sala Superiore. By 1577, he'd offered to complete the ceiling for only the cost of canvases and colors. We know that he further offered to do the 10 wall paintings for 100 ducats a year, delivering three by the feast day of San Rocco every year. This was a very low price for a very extensive decorative pattern and decorative cycle. And the Scuola must have had this in mind, having been charged with spending a lot of money on their decoration, now that humility and sacred poverty were being re-emphasized in the church. The paintings themselves will also reflect Tintoretto's very restrained religious imagery for a man who was quite devout. You can see that the paintings are placed against a, an ornately carved ceiling that's gilded as well. Over the high altar, an image of San Rocco. And then the various paintings on the sides between these double mullioned windows, leading for the unusual verticality of those paintings. And here, simply another view. And so, with thanks to Tom Nichols, who in his marvelous book on Tintoretto provided these diagrams, I can show you exactly how the ceiling is arranged. So the first of the canvases, number one, is of the brazen serpent. And so all of the scenes here on the ceiling are Old Testament images. And the three central ones have to do with Moses, the first and largest, the brazen serpent, the largest canvas on a ceiling in Venice by this point. And the second one down here, Moses striking the rock. And the third one up here of the gathering of manna. And we are not meant to read them in any linear way, neither the ceiling nor the walls. We'll get to the walls in a few moments. They are connected in terms of ideas. They are not linear. Number four down here will be crucial. It is the temptation of Adam. 
And I point out to you that the temptation of Adam, as well as number 33, the temptation of Christ, are outside this doorway, and this is where the albergo is. So we would have been very aware, going into the albergo, of the fall of man here, necessitating the life and crucifixion of Christ over here. So this image, the brazen serpent, 27 and a half feet high by 17 feet wide, and those are details over there to the left, clearly show Tintoretto thinking about religious art, humbled and purified, and these are responses to the criticism of worldliness on the part of the scuola. He himself said in making his offer that he was doing it for the great love of our venerable scuola and for devotion to the glorious San Rocco. The three major scenes beginning with this are antitypes of Christ as pictured on the walls below. So as you look at this, what's happening? First of all, Moses is here. And there's the brazen serpent here. And the brazen serpent is on a cross. Our eyes led up, the Soto and Sue, from down here, past this mass of writhing bodies who are attacked, and you can look closely, and here in the close-up you can see, by snakes. And the snakes often, if you look closely, bite them on the thigh, which is the mark of the plague. And it's important because this is in 1577, just when a great plague has hit Venice. So it's a reminder of this. And this was thought as a kind of punishment for lax uh, religious and moral aspects. You will notice, as in post-Council of Trent imagery, that the genitals are not exposed of these figures. Everything is discreetly covered up. And we look past these figures who are punished to those who have been saved here, and then up above to God, supported by angels. Now, one of the things you'll notice about all of these images is that they are spatially not consistent with a single point of view or a perspective system. That once again, they are episodic, that we look at various different areas and read them episodically rather than reading them as being carefully constructed spaces. They are, in this sense, spiritual, religious, mystical spaces. If we move toward one end, we see Moses drawing water from a rock. And here, this will be above paintings that are devoted to the sacrament of baptism, the idea of water. So the baptism of Christ is close by and other images. And here, God, in profile per due, all the way up here to the upper right, Moses striking the rock, this dominant figure, and then the figures down below attempting with various vessels to capture the water. Again, we have this De Soto and Sue. We are looking up past these figures, these enormous figures, and we get up here to the very stylized quick sketch over here of the upper part of the landscape. And there's a distinction between these figures that are in the far background, sketched in very quickly with the tip of the brush, white against that brown background, and the more elaborately decorated figures here. And you can see how cursory his marks are for the battle scene. That is the episode that takes place next after Moses striking the rock. And the third of these, which is toward the altar, is the image of here, the gathering of manna. And it is close to images of the Last Supper, and the miracle of the loaves and fishes. And so it reinforces, on one hand, the idea of the Eucharist, 
certainly from the Last Supper, but more importantly, another function of the scuola, and that's to give food to the poor, so that there was water at one end of the room, and then at the other end of the room, food, the sustenance, and then in the middle there are themes of sacrifice and redemption that lead to spiritual <coughs> healing. So here we have the manna being gathered. We see Moses from behind. We see this other figure gathering manna. There is this kind of triangle here of these large figures, and we see some depth here. But in terms of space, we don't understand precisely how these are done. And then, once again, God up above, sketched in fairly quickly. And these are figures we've seen in other places before. And so we go back to that end of the room. And again, one of the things we notice is that there are a number of ovals surrounding these larger rectangular scenes. And that we begin here, and I have, this is actually a little bit darker, I have used the PowerPoint to lighten it so that it is a little more legible. As you look at it, it is the temptation, it's the fall of man. And what's not easy to make out, even there, is the fact that this voluptuous looking Eve is actually surrounded by the coils of the serpent. This is the head of the serpent coming into the scene, giving her the apple, which she proffers to the not even completely formed figure of Adam. And so there may also be references to the fact that this outward exterior disguises the evil of the demon of the devil behind. And this may also allude to elements, society elements, such as the immense increase in venereal diseases at this time as well. And so we're down over here. But the ovals that you see in various places are also going to allude to those central passages. But down here, 22 and 23, are St. Roque and St. Sebastian. These are two plague saints. So people who'd come to get food, to get clothing, going up here would have seen the two plague saints at the end of the hall. And St. Roque looks up, and he looks up both at that scene of original sin and also toward the images of Moses on the ceiling. The ovals are images that have to do with sacrifice and redemption. These are the central ovals. They are larger figures, and they are more intimate. And so when you look, you can see the vocation of Moses over here, or Moses in the golden column over here, and the proximity of the figures to God in all of these suggests the intimacy of the interaction. This is Jonah coming out of the mouth of the whale over here and looking right into the face of God who ticks off on his fingers the various different tribulations. Or here in the sacrifice of Isaac, where Abraham turns his head, perhaps based on the St. Damien drawings that we see in the drawing show, and he turns his head toward the angel who stays his arm from this horrific deed. Again, the theme of sacrifice and then redemption. So shortly after having finished the ceiling, from 1578 to 15. 81, he would do the paintings on the wall. And again, we are not meant to read these paintings in a linear fashion. You see number 24 here, and then you go over here, and it's the adoration of the shepherds. And then it's next to the baptism of Christ, which is next to the resurrection, which is next to the image of the agony in the garden, and then the Last Supper. But remember, the Last Supper is over here near the gathering of manna, and near the loaves and the fishes, the miracle of the loaves and the fishes over here. So the relationship 
from the wall is with the ceiling painting close to it, not to be read as you might have read in other scuole narratives, a linear progression of various different images. And so the wall paintings of the Sala Superiore, which in general are about 17 and a half feet high by about 15 feet wide because they're next to those mullion windows. And Tintoretto makes a virtue of these shapes as much as possible. But these are very different from those more spiritual images of the old dispensation of Moses in the Old Testament on the ceiling. So now these have been characterized in terms of naturalism and in terms of a greater adherence perhaps to Franciscan principles. And remember, we are behind the church and monastery, the Franciscans in Venice. And so we have this scene, which is of the nativity. And what we get is this kind of understated naturalism. Here, the figures down below, these humble figures, the shepherds have come to pay homage. And now we get a manger which has two levels. A level below with the humble creatures that the New Testament narrative, the ox and the ass, tell us are the first witnesses of the birth of Christ. And the peacock, which is a symbol of the immortality, its body believed not to decay, sought through belief in Christ. And these figures with their various offerings, the humble surroundings, and then the hay here, and the two female attendants up here, one exposing her breast, perhaps to breastfeed the Christ child over here, quite small, in the most humble surroundings with the very broken ceiling that you see here with just a few angels peeking in from up above. And here, it's quite restrained in the palette and in the use of light. It's next to this scene, which is of the baptism. And it also uses that restrained palette, very almost monochromatic approach. But here the light becomes very important. The light that shines down as Christ humbles himself for the baptism, which is really not necessary for him, but which he partakes as a model for others. And so the light comes down and the light is spread over those figures and only picks out a little bit of the others waiting on the shore. Again, very cursorily done. And you can see that in this detail. And you can imagine the speed with which he's working. And next to it, as if in contrast, this image of the resurrection with this explosive central image of Christ bursting out of the tomb, the angels supporting that, the apostles sleep here in the foreground, the women who have followed and come to see Christ's tomb, and that monumental heroic figure of Christ, almost to set a contrast up with the paintings on either side, which include this scene of the agony in the garden, where the light of the angel bringing the chalice to Christ as he seems to doze here, as opposed to these figures or these figures. And the light of the angel doesn't extend beyond this dark area. And again, what we get is an episodic reading rather than all of this being unified pictorially, structurally it's unified, but not in terms of the narrative. And so what we've done is to go down this wall and we are about to enter here because this is where the Last Supper is. And the Last Supper, which reminds us of hunger, is where the Eucharist is established as Christ gives the wafer to Peter, instructs him that this is his body. He is connected by way of the perspective in the floor to the hungry figures down below. 
And then we get the perspective of the table, which would lead us over here to the high altar on the upper level, which although it doesn't contain the sacrament, certainly wants that emphasis on the function and mission of the scola to be there. Notice the nice details here of the kitchen and of the workers here in the background, as well as the elements of decoration. It's not sent in some grand palatial setting. Instead, it's set in a kind of room that shows off the humility of these figures who are either seated on the floor or kneeling or perhaps have a box to sit on. And there you can see Christ offering the wafer to Peter and that detail down to the lower right of Judas. And these are opposite of this painting. And this is the image of the miracle of the loaves and fishes. And here, the role of the scola is even further emphasized because the loaves and the fishes, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, Christ here by that delicate halo and Andrew and the people who are distributing food and the idea of handing food and drink down to those below. And the other figures that you see back here, again, we're not meant to understand this as one unified space, but as episodes that contribute to our understanding of Christ's mission and therefore of the Scola's mission as well. And beyond that, the image of the raising of Lazarus. And here, Christ in the foreground, Lazarus being raised here, these large-scale figures that lead us up. And this is a somewhat more coherent space, but one of the things that we note is that the brushwork itself contributes to the almost ethereal presence of these figures. And finally, the image of the resurrection a little bit further to the right. At this point, he had completed the paintings in the Sala Superiore. And now, seemingly without a break, he moves downstairs to the Sala Terrena. However, if we move from the upper level to the lower level, we go down a grand staircase. And on the landing of that staircase, famously, there was a painting by Titian of the Annunciation set in a beautiful classical building, much revered by the members of the Scuola. It had been hanging in the stairwell, though it was done in the 1530s, perhaps 1538. It had been in the stairwell since 1557. Opposite this painting, Tintoretto would later do this image of the visitation. And so in this sense, it is the perfect segue, the Annunciation and the visitation to the Sala, uh, the Sala Terrena, to the lower level. And this is what the lower level looks like. And you can see these delicately fluted columns, which is what Caravaglia was criticizing for expense and for the flooring. And you can see the images on either side. This is where the paintings would be on either side. And here, it is fairly linear. So we start, this is both the front door, but often this was the door that was used. So when you came in this door, the first thing that you would see would be the Annunciation and then the Adoration. And beyond that, the flight into Egypt, the Massacre of the Innocents, the two paintings that you can see upstairs of Mary in the wilderness, the much damaged circumcision and assumption of the version over here. <coughs> and so here, almost directly below the Annunciation above upstairs, we have this image, which shows, again, a very earthy image. So where is this taking place? Well, 
Tintoretto very much has in mind that great Titian above, and I think he's thinking in terms of this angel, but he has the angel floating in along with the dove of the Holy Spirit and all of these angels as they cascade in. And here, the figure of Mary in a kind of humble surround. Yes, there's a tiled floor, but there's a chair with a broken rung and it's a straw seat chair. Here, the outside is separated by this column, which is not in a good state of repair here or here. And outside, Joseph works in a carpenter's shop. So they are poor, but they are working poor. And when we look at this, we think in terms of uh, the reaction to the worldliness of the decorations that had been on the exterior of the building and how Tintoretto is working very hard to create this sense of uh, humility, a sense of everyday life. And it also suggests man's destitute state prior to Christ's arrival here in the incarnation. Adjacent to it, this image, and this is of the adoration, but in this case, it's the adoration of the Magi. But Tintoretto doesn't take the opportunity, as so many artists would have, to show us all of the richness of their costumes or the gifts and the entourage, which is left here in the distance. Instead, we're left to the figures here, Balthasar as he reaches forward, and the figures of the Magi here, and they're on a little platform that's supported by some crumbling masonry and brickwork. And the entire structure is supported also by this humble masonry and that broken girdering in the ceiling. And so this, as opposed to the adoration of the shepherds, which is almost directly above it upstairs, shows an opposite scene, but reinforces the same message. It is next to one of Tintoretto's greatest landscapes, certainly. The flight into Egypt, and here the landscape is supportive and protective. Trees bend over. It is verdant. It is perhaps the landscape of Egypt as opposed to the Holy Land. And one of the interesting things here is something that occurs upstairs in the exhibition as well, and that is that the flight into Egypt, the rest here on the flight into Egypt, is not shown as a process from left to right, but instead they are coming out. They are heading into our space. They are literally enlivening the area that we inhabit. That is their next step. And we can make that out by the humble details here on the floor as well. And so we've gotten to here and then the massacre of the innocents. And the massacre of the innocents certainly meant to be a prefiguration of the sacrifice and crucifixion of Christ. Various episodes here, the opportunity not to show off in terms of the figural expression, but to have the variety of figures. And we remember these figures from other paintings, and the figure reaching down in this way to try and save this child. The woman over here holding the blade of the executioner trying to save her child. Others with the children on their laps, almost Pieta-like. Again, we read it episodically, very powerful image based on the expressive distortions of human anatomy. The circumcision, and I think you can see right away, not a visionary image, much more staid and orthodox image here, probably the work of Domenico rather than Jacopo Tintoretto. You can see all of the kinds of staid and tried solutions and the very careful way in which this is painted. And finally, the Assumption of the Virgin, which is much restored and repainted because these two paintings 
were heavily damaged. And finally, the two paintings that we have upstairs. There are many different solutions that have been suggested for who they are. The current thinking is that they are both images of Mary. Perhaps they were done for someplace else. Perhaps they were done for the Scola. In either case, they show us a great deal about Tintoretto's working method, his interest in landscape in this latter part of his career, his use of pigments that were fugitive, both in the costumes of Mary, which should be blue and red, and in the skies, which should be blue and silver. They give us an insight into that late working method. The Scuola San Rocco exists today as an active scuola, still doing charitable works. As with other religious institutions, they were suppressed at the time of Napoleon, but they were powerful enough to come back, and although they lost their property around the rest of Venice, properties that had accrued to them over years, they were able to continue and have a powerful presence, and they remain the most active of all of the scuole today. San Giovanni Evangelista is also an active Scuola Grande. And the Scuola of the Carmine has its treasures by Tiepolo, Piazzetta, and others. But it is only at the Scuola Grande di San Rocco that you find the Renaissance and Tintoretto so fully developed and so fully exposed. Next week, we're going to go on and talk about where to find Tintoretto around the rest of Venice, where he's still in situ, where you still get that oblique point of view when you go and see altarpieces, or if you go to the Academia, where all of this will be pulled together for you as a kind of Tintoretto itinerary. Thanks so much for your attention today. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.